Hey, hey, good morning. Uh, thanks for being here. My name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. We are in this series called Stay Positive. Uh, I love that song. Just randomly at Starbucks, I'll break out the... People are kind of like, what? And I'm like, I love it. Uh, yeah, it's been great uh, in this series the last couple of weeks. Pastor Nate kicked us off on January 7th, and we said that positive people are generous. Positive people are generous with their time, with their talent, with their love, with their grace, with our financial resources. That that's the way God wants us to live, to be generous. And then last week, Jeremy did a great job uh, saying that positive people are grateful and to be grateful for everything in our life. And uh, I love some of the posts. Michelle Chase shared a great one uh, online on Facebook about just being grateful that, you know, when, when you're helping your kid at their homework and it's hard, it's grateful that I have children, you know, that you're, you're dealing with stuff in the house. It's, I'm grateful I have a warm place to live. And we, and we can look at everything in our life through this lens of being grateful. And today we're going to look at uh, something else that positive people are. Uh, but before we get to what positive people are, we're going to look at something that is inside each one of us, uh, something that keeps us from, something that causes us to do certain things. So this, this thing inside each and every one of us, it, it keeps us from this positive lifestyle of following Jesus. It, it causes us to do these things. I'll give you some clues about what it is we're going to talk about today. Uh, this is the thing that keeps you from celebrating other people's successes. This is the thing that keeps you from initiating an apology when you know you're only 5% wrong and the other person's like 95% wrong, right? And it's like, well, I'm only partially wrong, so I can't apologize. This thing keeps you arguing your point long after you realize you don't really have a very good point to make. This thing keeps you from admitting your weaknesses. This thing keeps you from admitting that you need help. This thing keeps you from being honest with yourself. This thing keeps you from being honest with others. It's what causes you to power up when, when those emotions get hot instead of opening up. It's what causes you to buy things to impress people who aren't even paying attention to you. And this is what causes you to feel like you have to have the final word. Anyway, any guesses? What is this thing that's inside each and every one of us? Today we need to kill it. What is that one thing? Anyone? Pride. pride. Yeah, pride. Pride is in side of us, and we need to kill it. We're going to talk about pride today. Isn't that exciting? Yes. Not the pride where you're proud of your kids, you know, you're proud of the, the job that you've done or the artwork you've accomplished or, you know, the things that you've done to inspire others to greatness. We're talking about the nasty pride that's inside each one of us. Here's what C.S. Lewis, uh, author of many, many great books in Mere Christianity, he wrote this, Unchastity. Uh, we don't even know what that word even means anymore. Don't look it up. You'll just get really depressed. Uh, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. That every other vice, every other sin, really at its root is pride. And if you are breathing, pride is in you and pride is in me. See, the problem with pride is that we can easily see it in other people but it's almost impossible to see it in the mirror. Uh, this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write that down. The problem with pride is that you can easily see it in other people, but it's almost impossible to see it in the mirror. Pride, we see it so easily in others. We have a hard time seeing it in ourselves. But it's in all of us. So what do we do about this problem that's inside each and every one of us? We're going to learn to kill it. What are we going to do? Say it with me. We're going to 
kill it. Say it with me, we're going to kill it. Yeah, we're going to kill this. Uh, a few things about pride. Pride diminishes your capacity. Pride diminishes your capacity. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of us think pride makes us bigger and better, but the reality is that pride makes us smaller and worse. It actually diminishes you. Specifically, pride diminishes your and my capacity to admit, to apologize, to acknowledge. Pride diminishes your capacity to admit what you need to admit, to apologize for when you need to apologize, and it diminishes your ability to acknowledge what you need to acknowledge. We've all had that strange emotional thing inside of us when we realize we've done something wrong. And there's three words that are really hard to say. Uh, I am sorry. And that's tough. But I think even tougher than those three words are uh, three other words. And uh, when we have to say those words, there's something inside of us that just wells up. And it's like, I was wrong, right? Like, why is it so hard to admit when we've been wrong? Like, it's hard to say sorry, but I think it's even harder to admit when we have been wrong. And why is that? It's, it's pride. It's this thing that wells up inside of us. It says, no, I, I can't be wrong. See, there's layers of emotion wrapped up in all of us, in, in all of us. But pride diminishes us. Pride diminishes your capacity to say what needs to be said and to acknowledge what needs to acknowledge. There are people who need a compliment from you, a word of encouragement. But many times you and I just kind of withhold that because of pride. There's something inside of you that just can't say what needs to be said. That's, that's a pride thing. Pride diminishes your capacity to hear what you need to hear. Pride diminishes your capacity to give what you need to be given. Pride diminishes our ability to do what we need to do. And that's why we need to kill it. See, an invitation to follow Jesus is actually an invitation to unfollow pride. An invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to unfollow pride. To say, you know, I'm not going to live this way anymore, where my pride is the thing that's, that's primarily relating to people around me, that's guiding my life and how I relate to my kids and my spouse and my parents and, and those who work with me. Instead, I'm, I'm going to unfollow pride. I'm going to follow Jesus. And the example that he set. See, Jesus taught and modeled a radical view of humility. Today, what I want to see is that positive people, people who are like Jesus, who believe that the best is yet to come, that we should be filled with joy because of what God has done for us. We should be optimistic because we know that our God ultimately has the victory. Amen? We know where we're going. We know who holds our future in our hands. And so we want to be positive in that. And positive people are generous, positive people are grateful, and positive people are humble. And this example of Jesus is, is really applicable for each and every one of us, regardless of what you think about Jesus. Maybe you're here today, and you're still kind of exploring this whole Christianity thing out. And you're like, I don't really know. Is Jesus, was he real? Is he really God? I don't know. Regardless of kind of your opinions about Jesus, I hope you see today that by following his example, by saying no to pride and embracing his example of humility, it's the better way to live, regardless of what you think about Jesus. Because it's going to take the remote control of your life away from pride and give it to Jesus. And there's so many emotions wrapped up in this. 
And this emotions we feel can be a prison that pride puts us in. But Jesus' Jesus's humility has the potential to unlock that prison of, of pride and emotions that can guide our life. See, when Jesus showed up, he arrived to a world that had a very specific religious pecking order. There were insiders and then there were outsiders. Those were those who were the good people and the bad people. But he showed up and he redefined greatness as how well you serve other people, not how well you are served. It's what's called his upside-down kingdom. He said that if you want to be the greatest, you need to serve. It's, it's not about how people can serve you. It, it, it's how are you serving and loving them. Uh, for the last year or so, just over a year, we've been journeying through the book of Luke, taking a couple breaks, and now we find ourselves in Luke 18. If you want to turn there in your Bible app or with your Bibles, you can do that. Otherwise, all the scriptures will be here behind me on the screen as well. And we're going to see what Jesus says about humility and about following him. Uh, before we do that, would you just join me in prayer? God, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word. I thank you for Luke, uh, a doctor who carefully investigated uh, everything you said and did and wrote down these stories and these words to, to inspire us, to help us to know who Jesus was, to be like him, to do the things that Jesus did. God, I pray this morning that uh, everything I say would be your words, God, not mine. Uh, I pray for clarity. Uh, and I pray, God, that uh, we would learn to kill pride, uh, to, to uh, embrace humility, and to follow your example. Amen. Jesus is going to tell a story that to his original audience would have honestly been incredibly shocking. Uh, Jesus says basically that a, a holy man goes to a holy place to do a holy thing, but the reality is it was a very unholy uh, experience. And so it's like, wait, what, Jesus, what, what are you trying to say here? And this is kind of classic Jesus. Uh, verse 9 uh, through 14 this morning. Jesus, he also told this parable, that's a, a story, uh, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple, a holy place, to pray. One, a Pharisee, a holy man, and the other, a tax collector. All right, if you don't have a lot of church background, a Pharisee is someone who's from the ruling religious class in first century Judaism. He's very educated. He'd be an expert in religious law. It's a very religious man, a leader in his community, highly educated, highly respected. He loved and served God. If you grew up in the church, sometimes we can see Pharisees as the bad guys. And they kind of are a straw man, just for everything that's bad. And like, oh, Pharisees, those are bad, boo. The reality is Pharisees were the best of the best of the best. That only the best and the brightest Jewish students would get the invitation by a rabbi to come follow them, to take on their yoke, which meant their, their teaching. And only uh, the best of the best of the best were chosen by a rabbi to follow them. Uh, and to, uh, so that the rabbi said, I think you can be like me. I'm going to try to reproduce myself in you. And so the Pharisees are those who've been chosen by rabbis and very uh, learned. They uh, were very holy. They, they were passionate about God. But we're going to see that sometimes our religion gets in the way. So Jesus is going to kind of flip this thing upside down. Now, tax collectors, sometimes, maybe if you grew up in the church, we think of tax collectors as like Joe the plumber, like the normal everyday guys. You know, some of us maybe, uh, how many of you guys grew up in church and you know about, you know, Zacchaeus? Anybody know the song? Uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he. You know that one? No? Just me? <laughs> Climbed up on a sycamore tree. Sing along. See what he could see. You know. Uh, yeah, good job. Give yourselves a hand. Zacchaeus. <laughs> 
actually going to talk about Zacchaeus in a couple of weeks, and I kind of had a bet with Nate whether I'd sing it or not, so Nate, you owe me a coffee. Uh, but sometimes we think, oh, Zacchaeus, nice guy, little guy, short, Joe the plumber. The reality is tax collectors, they were not the everyday ordinary kind of Jewish hero. Nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, tax collectors were wicked, wicked bunch of men. They'd purchased the right from the evil empire Rome to raise taxes for the empire to support a suppressing army that was responsible for the rape and murder of hundreds of thousands of women and children. They betrayed their own countrymen. They betrayed their own neighbors. They were the worst of the worst. So Jesus tells a story. Best of the best of the best. A highly religious guy. Loves God. Worst of the worst of the worst. Tax collector. And that's how people would have heard this story. And they both go into the temple to pray. Jesus tells us the religious man his prayer first. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. All right, it's really easy, kind of in our context, to just throw the Pharisee under the bus. Before that, though, let's admit, like, we all do this to some degree or another. Basically, what the Pharisee is saying, God, thank you for saving me from myself. Thank you for saving me from this path that I know I could have gone down. So either through good parents or a church that he was able to engage in, for whatever reason, God, through his grace, saved this Pharisee from becoming what he could have become without the grace of God. It's not a bad prayer. It's not bad to realize, I have a lustful heart. But you know, I've submitted that lustful heart to God. And you know what, God, you have changed me and sanctified me. And I'm thankful that I'm not an adulterer. I'm thankful that I'm no longer addicted to pornography. That is what the Pharisee is saying here. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. He's saying, thank you, God. I don't hoard all my money. And make it all mine. Thank you that I've been faithful to my wife. The reality is I, I like this guy. He takes his holiness seriously. He's maybe a little uptight, but he's morally, you know, uh, a little uptight, but morally upright. He probably wouldn't like me personally, but I like him. He's a good guy. Now his prayer is a little shady because he's, he's throwing some shade at the guy next to him. Now let me speak to that. Now, you may have not verbally done this. God, thanks for not making me like Jeremy Stuber. Like, you know, maybe you haven't prayed that. But, uh, you know, you've probably thought something like that. Um, you know, where you've been in some situation, you're like, man, God, I'm thankful that's not me. You know, several years ago, Chris and I were hanging out with some friends. We're all together. We're eating dinner. And, you know, one wife just kind of lights into her husband and just kind of publicly berating him. And it's just awkward. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm so glad I'm not you right now, buddy. Like, I'm so thankful for my wife. And so it's like, all right, date night this week. Taking her to Olive Garden. Unlimited breadsticks, baby, to thank her for being a great wife, you know? But I think we've all been in those situations where it's like, man, God, thank you for saving me from that. I'm not like that person. That's what he's saying. Verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, let's be honest. Fasting is not a very popular idea. Many of us are fasting something, but the reality of giving something up because God has something better for us, like, eh, it's not really in our culture. Not only does he talk about fasting twice a week, he talks about tithing on everything. He tithes on everything. That means he gets $20, you know, for his birthday from his grandma, he gives $2 back to God. You know, he gets his tax return back, he tithes on that. You know, he gets a Christmas bonus, he tithes on that. Everything he gets, he's tithing on that. Now, I gotta be honest, I like this guy, not just because he tithes, but he's faithful, he's dependable, he's the tithing type. He's the type of person who pays the salaries of pastors so they can preach on tax collectors and Pharisees. That's who this guy is. 
He's ferocious about God. He's serious about his holiness and serious about his pursuit of God and the obedience to the law. In fact, it's, he's overzealous when it comes to the law. Because as a Pharisee, he was required by law to fast once a week. And he's like, no, no, that's not good enough. I'm not just going to fast once a week. I'm going to fast twice a week. This is a guy who'd lead a small group. This is a guy who'd serve where only the best and the brightest and the most courageous serve for God, you know, back in the nursery. That's where he would be serving. So that's kind of his prayer. God, thank you for saving me from that person. And look, look, look what I've done because, because of, of your grace in my life. You know, I've, I tithe and, and, and I fast. Then we get to the tax collector's prayer. It's a whole lot shorter. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even come all the way into the temple. He's in the back corner. He's, he's like maybe some of you when you, you come here for the first time and you're like, I'm just going to sneak in late, sit in the back row. I'm going to leave a little early. That's the tax collector. He doesn't want to come all the way in. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's his whole prayer. Nothing religious, nothing moral about what he has or hasn't done for God. He simply screams out in a flood of his own tears, God, be merciful on me. My heart hurts for the tax collector. He's about as broken as he can get. He's swimming his own tears. I know there are many of you here where you can identify with the tax collector. Now, this next sentence that Jesus says is honestly about as terrifying a sentence as you will find in the Bible. See, if Jesus would have put a period instead of a comma, like it would have been a very warm and fuzzy story. But this is Jesus. And this isn't, that wasn't what he does. He doesn't give us warm and fuzzy. Jesus shocks us with scandalous grace and confronts us on our own assumptions about our own goodness. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. And if he wouldn't have put a comma there, if he would have just said, this man, you know, he, he, he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He went justified, period. You know, that would be amazing. That would be good. Justified, it's a legal term. It means you're in right standing. You're, you're innocent. You're declared uh, not guilty by a judge. And Jesus is saying that this tax collector has right standing before God, his judge. God has no wrath for him. Now, if there were a period there that he was justified before God, you know, we could just kind of stand up, hold hands, get the worship band back out here and close in prayer and just rejoicing that God can even save scum of the earth people like the tax collector. Yay, God, let's go. But verse 14 doesn't have a period there. There's a comma. And that comma is going to cause a little storm for us. Let's look at that. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, comma, rather than the other. Now, this would have been shocking to his original audience. What do you mean the best and the brightest, the guy who has memorized the whole Old Testament, the guy who fasts twice a week, who tithes on every single thing he gives, what do you mean he's not in right standing before God? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So if they ask, Jesus, what are you saying? The tax collector has right standing before God, but the Pharisee, this religious, holy man, doesn't? Let me tell you the problem with the Pharisee's prayer. 
Uh, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. I grew up in a great church in Maple Grove. And when you do that, you have opportunities for discipleship. And as a teenager, I was part of uh, different discipleship groups where they helped kind of the teenagers go deeper in, into God's word and in prayer and service opportunities. And one of those, you learn how to share your faith. You learn, you know, evangelism. And, you, and there's different evangelism trainings. And one of them is this idea that you ask someone, uh, hi, you know, my name is Eric. And uh, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go when, when you died? Now, when I think about that now, that is quite a way to start the conversation, right? It's like, if you were to die today, it's like, whoa, are you, are you threatening me right now? Like, you know, like, what is going on? Um, but, you know, if you were to die today and God were to ask you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? And, it's, you know, it's good. It's a way to get people thinking. But let's take that question and let's apply that to the two people in our parable. Let's pretend the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go to the temple, they pray, they're walking home, and then, you know, rogue chariot gets away and then runs them over and, they're, and they die. And they're standing before God. And he's on his throne of judgment outside the gates of heaven. And the Pharisee walks in and God says, okay, why should I let you into my heaven? And the response of the Pharisee might be, God, you should let me into heaven because I wasn't a thief, I wasn't an adulterer, I wasn't a liar. I tithe and fasted twice a week. In fact, not only did I tithe, not only did I give what you asked, but I went beyond it and uh, I fasted twice a week beyond what you asked, you should let me into heaven because, you know, I even served in the preschool ministry at my church plant. Like, that's why I should get allowed into heaven. Not only was I obedient to your law, but I've gone beyond your, your law. That's why you should let me into your heaven. See, the problem with the Pharisee's prayer was his pride. He thought his spiritual growth justified him. He thought that his acts of growth gave him right standing before God. But Jesus says he's not justified. Then there's the tax collector. And I imagine the tax collector has to be dragged in before the throne of God. See, the Bible says he didn't go all the way into the temple. He stayed on the outskirts where the Gentiles were. So there's no way he's walking, approaching you know, the throne of God. And so, you know, two angels have to pick him up. They kind of drag him before God. And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? The tax collector just falls on his face, weeping. He says, I plead the blood of Christ. I plead the blood of Christ. I plead the blood of Christ. I'm not worthy. There's no reason you should let me in. Except through your mercy, through faith in the cross of Jesus. Do I have any right to be let in? And God will say, you're in right standing with me. Come in to heaven. See, the, fair, the, the tax collector didn't come on his own merits of his own religion or what he had done. Simply saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as we've journeyed through the book of Luke for the last year, we saw that Jesus is constantly going to confront the idea that your external religious actions somehow can save you. See, the hope of the follower of Jesus Christ is in one thing and one thing alone. Christ alone. But here's, here's how I think many of us get confused. 
See, we come to Christ and we cross that line of faith. We receive forgiveness. And, and everyone who comes to Christ has baggage. Some of us a little bit. Some of us a lot of baggage. We all have some kind of baggage. And as you start to get freedom from those things, you start to rejoice in the freedom of those things. And that's not a bad thing. Then all of a sudden you start to walk upright. You start to pursue your holiness. And before you know it, you're so concerned with pursuing the things of God that Jesus is no longer the center of how you relate to God. And somewhere in the middle of that, things get very confusing and we exalt ourselves and pride creeps in and we can look at others with contempt. If you've ever seen Christians berate or attack someone else, they've been confused as to who is the author and perfecter of their faith. It's not them. It's Christ alone. And that is the fuel for our worship. Christ alone. We have nothing to boast in. It's only through Christ. So maybe you're here today. Maybe... Maybe you love the fact that you used to be one way, but you've grown and you've changed. But pride has creeped in. You haven't realized, maybe until right now, you've been locked in a prison of pride. There's nothing wrong with loving where God has brought you and changed you, but there has to be constant understanding that it's Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone that we are justified before God. And that understanding brings humility. Or maybe today you're like the tax collector, you understand the gravity of what you've done, of how you don't measure up to God's perfect standard. But the good news is that regardless of whatever you are guilty of, it's the one act of faith in the grace of Jesus Christ through what he has done on the cross that pays for what you've done once and for all. I think one of the biggest ways that pride puts us in a prison is when it comes to conflict and reconciling with those who have hurt or offended us. Hear me on this. This might be the most important thing you hear today. The most significant thing Jesus did was that he initiated reconciliation. That he initiated reconciliation. See, Jesus didn't wait for us, the other person, to make the first step or start the conversation. Jesus, the Son of God, initiated reconciliation. This is why this is so significant, that Jesus was 100% right and 100% wronged, and yet he initiated reconciliation. And I think if you follow Jesus in this one way, it is the power to break the power of pride in your life. See, pride says wait. Wait until that person has paid. I'm not going to you know, let them back into my life. Pride says, wait until, you know, they humble themselves to come to me. Pride says, wait. Jesus says, initiate. No, you take that first step. Initiate that reconciliation. And now, real quick, whenever we talk about reconciliation, I have to, um, that forgiveness and taking that step toward reconciliation doesn't mean that you don't keep boundaries up. That if someone in your life has hurt you, has harmed you, has caused pain in your life, that taking that step to forgive them by letting go of that hurt doesn't mean they get the chance to continue to hurt you. You can still have those high boundaries, and it may not be a part of your life, but you can still initiate that forgiveness and that reconciliation without allowing them back in. And that's really important because I know there are many here who have experienced abuse of some kind or another. 
But pride says, I'm going to I'm gonna have to think about this before I, you know, I forgive this person, before I try to initiate some kind of reconciliation. That's what Christians like to do. We like to say, oh, let me think about it and let me pray about it. But as your, prayer, as your pastor, I have to tell you, there are things you don't have to pray about. Just go do it. If Jesus has clearly communicated, you don't need to pray about it. Jesus was guiltless. Yet he came down to earth to die for us. Even though so many people offered this amazing gift of reconciliation and forgiveness and justification would spurn his gift, would spit on it. That is extraordinary. Mind-bending, relationship-building humility. Regardless of what you believe and wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you will be better off following this example of Jesus and living this way. Your kids will be better off. Your parents will be better off. Your coworkers will be better off. You know why? Because you will be approachable. You're breaking through the layers of emotion that leaves us uh, trapped in a prison of pride. The Apostle Paul, 20 years after Jesus died on the cross for our sins, looked back at the example Jesus gave us and wrote this down to a new church plant. That's why I love the writings of Paul. Is that all his books are to new church plants like us. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm just going to read this in the NIV, normally I read in the ESV, but I grew up on the NIV, and I like the translation for this. Therefore, this is to a new church plant just like us. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledges Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that move you? Think of the mind-bending humility that took for Jesus to leave heaven, to come to earth, and to die for us. How far did Jesus go in his humility? He died for you and me. And all he wants you to do is apologize. Or write that card you've been putting off. Or maybe just shut up. <laughs> or give a compliment. Let's have a little humility. Look at what Jesus did for us. And there's power with living with this type of humility that Jesus lived with. It'll break pride, and you and I won't miss that pride a bit. Jesus went so far as to death on a cross, and now he's simply asking you and I to follow him in that. But something within us wells up our emotions saying, no, but you don't understand what they've done. You don't understand how my parents treated me growing up. But that's how pride controls us, through emotions and not intellect. And your emotions tell you there's a reason to not apologize and to rationalize bad feelings of resentment. 
But Jesus is asking you and I to hand over the remote control of our life and give it to him. Do you really want pride? Do you really want your emotions, the negativity to control your marriage, to control your relationship with your kids, to control all your relationships? Pride doesn't have to be your master. Jesus wants you to embrace radical humility. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's no reason not to. There's three questions I want each of us to ask, and maybe you'll do that right now, maybe later today or this week. I want each of us to think through these questions this week. It's a little bit of homework from your pastor today. Number one, how does pride manifest itself in me? How does pride manifest itself in me? This isn't the time to nudge your neighbor, to nudge your spouse. Well, I know how it manifests in you, right? And if you don't know the answer to this question, then I guarantee you someone close to you does, okay? So instead of nudging them saying, I know how, you can say, hey, spouse or friend, how does pride manifest itself in me? Scary question, right? Uh, So if you don't know the answer, uh, because it does somehow, ask someone close to you and they will tell you. I'll tell you how it manifests in me. You know, when someone doesn't understand why I did something or my reasoning or jump to conclusions, I know my emotions jump up and that pride rears its ugly head and I want to make sure they understand you know, why I did what I did. I want to protect my reputation. And when you get older, you start feeling entitled to certain things. I worked hard. I deserve that, whatever that is. But pride is the potential to undermine everything I want God to do in me as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. It's the same for you. You and I have got to know where our pride has the potential to manifest itself and shut other people out and lock us in a prison. Number two, what does pride masquerade as in me? What does pride masquerade as in me? Because most of us, we don't think we have pride. But because it's hiding behind something else. Is it confidence? Is it arrogance? Intellect? Fashion? Well, I just like the nicer things in life. Is your pride masquerading behind sarcasm? A commitment to excellence or always having to improve things? Those are fine things, but oftentimes pride can manifest itself behind those things. You gotta do the hard work. You gotta ask God, how does pride, how does it masquerade inside of me? What is it hiding behind? Number three, how much longer do I plan to let pride master me and control my life? A month? A year? The rest of your life? Wouldn't you like to break the power of pride? Wouldn't you like to kill pride in your life? And through the help of Jesus Christ, you can overcome pride. You can go compliment someone bragging other people, even if they're not doing things exactly the way that you would have done them. Let's not let pride control our lives. Maybe you need to go to one of our, our men's groups. We have a Wednesday morning men's group and a Saturday morning men's group or our Monday night women's group. And maybe you need to go, let go of your pride and admit your drinking problem. Admit your addiction. Admit where you are struggling, but you've been too prideful to tell someone Where you have been struggling. Pride has a way of telling you to hide those things. Because, you know, if if you are vulnerable, if you admit your weaknesses, people are going to, you know, reject you or think less of you. You need to kill that pride. And in humility say, guys, I need help. I am broken. I am imperfect. See, we think by holding on to this pride, it makes us bigger and stronger. But in fact, it makes us weaker. It makes us worse. 
Is this something that you can do? Are you ready to break up with pride and overcome those emotions that can hold us back? And why wouldn't you? Why would you continue to embrace and follow something that has the potential to kill you instead of following someone who died for you? Even if you're not sure about who Jesus is and what he has done, why would you not embrace the radical approach to humility that Jesus modeled? Is the power to set you free and no longer be shut in while God and others are shut out. Why continue to embrace something that ultimately is going to kill you and kill your relationships? This pride that stops you from admitting, from apologizing, from acknowledging. Instead, follow the humility of the one who died for you and me. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Would you join me in prayer? God, each one of us, we struggle with pride. And for some of us, we, we've buried it. And we don't realize how pride is masqueraded in our life. It, it can sneak in so easily. We can start to take um, pride in, in, in what we've done, uh, even how our lives have changed. And then we look down on others and, and the situation they find themselves in. God, I pray that we could be released from the prison of pride so that we could admit our weaknesses, that we could admit where we need to grow, that we could apologize when we need to apologize, to acknowledge the things we need to acknowledge. God, I pray for each and every one of us. I pray for myself, God, that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to follow the kind of humility that Jesus Christ showed by coming to earth by letting go of all the privileges of heaven and then dying on a cross by taking that first step of reconciliation towards us. God, I pray right now that if there are those of us in the room and we feel like there's something between us and someone else, and God, we've been, through pride, we, we haven't taken that first step, that pride has been telling us to wait, God, I pray that through you that we would initiate that first step God, I pray for broken relationships that they would be healed. God, I pray that those of us who are holding on to uh, wrongs, to ways we've been hurt, our offenses, God, that we could let those go through humility, through the example of Jesus. God, kill the pride inside each one of us. God, we pray that this week we would just be overwhelmed with thankfulness as we fall on our knees and just say, God, thank you for saving someone like me, a sinner. God, let us just be so aware of your holiness and how we don't measure up. But in your infinite mercy, you've invited us in. Thank you for that, God. Let us just be moved by that. Thank you, Jesus. And help the Vikings win today. <laughs> Amen. Would you stand with me today? Uh, thanks for being here today. Uh, again, go Vikes. Um, we're excited uh, just that you are here. And uh, we're going to close our service now with receiving an offering. This is for those who call Mosaic home. This is a way to partner with us in what we're doing. Uh, through your generosity, we're able to... 
uh, buy groceries and presents for a bunch of uh, families this, this uh, Christmas time. Um, through your generosity, uh, we're able to be a church that's a blessing to others. So I just want to thank you for that. Um, we're going to receive an offer now. You can drop off that connection card in the offering basket as we go out. And uh, don't miss next week as we wrap up this series. And uh, we're going to have a time of ministry at the end, uh, a time of prayer. And uh, we're going to talk about how uh, Jesus wants us to be persistent. And if you've been praying for something, you haven't received an answer yet. We're going to talk about that next week. And, and what do we do when we keep praying, we keep asking, we keep seek, seeking, keep knocking? There's no answer. What do we do? That's what we're going to do next week as we, as we uh, wrap up this series. Uh, may you know that God, who is so amazing and awesome and above you and beyond you, that God in his infinite mercy comes down to reconcile us to him and that through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can be justified, you can be made right with him. You can break the power of pride in your life and follow the example of Jesus and live a life filled with humility. Live a life filled with positivity and hope and knowing that the best is yet to come, that God is for you. May you live in that truth this week. Let's go out of here singing, receive an offering. Have a great week.